I think the ideal clinic visit will be a virtual visit, which will be powered by sensors, which will have you know machine learning strategies to enable us to use all those data from sensors to really have an objective assessment of those patients. And this will be multidisciplinary and primarily video-based. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, this one is with Dr. Jagmeet Singh, who actually has been on Parallax before. So it's, it's great that he's back uh, on the show, um, you know, this time to talk about um, his newly released and, and, and published book, um, which, uh, you know, I must say that all of us should, you know, read. And we'll, we'll put the links on our show notes uh, for our listenership to, uh, you know, download as to where they can get a copy. Um, Dr. Singh needs an introduction. He's professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and um, a clinical cardiac electrophysiologist at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, Dr. Singh, welcome on the show and thank you so much for doing this for us. Thank you, Ankur. Uh, delighted to be here and uh, delighted to have the opportunity to be invited again. So must have done something right the first time, I guess. Yes, you know, the the first time you were on the show was during the pandemic and, you know, your um, journey through, um, you know, having been hospitalized with, with COVID-19 was, uh, um, was very telling. And, you know, thank you for being so vulnerable and honest with with the with the listenership and and with us uh, at Parallax, it was very informative, uh, and these were th- those were sort of the early days, and we were still learning so much about the about the disease process itself. And uh, I think y- your journey shed a lot of light um, into, and also I-, I would say empathy and compassion into you know what patients must have been going through. Uh, so you sharing it as a physician meant a lot uh, to me in person as well as to others who, who listened. Because I did get some incredible feedback on, you know, uh, like thanking me for bringing you on, and I said you don't have to thank me after you, you should. They should thank you. Um, so no, thank you for thank you for sharing your journey through that. Uh, but you know, uh, thankfully those days are behind us, and uh, this is a new day, and you've come up with uh, a book, and uh, uh, you know, I think for. Those of you who do not follow Dr. Singh on LinkedIn, I think you should because his feed is very informative. Um, and his feed also, um, I mean, obviously not only keep you up to date on everything electrophysiology, but some of the incredible things that he's doing in, in his uh, career uh, as well. I think, um, I, and the reason I bring this up, Dr. Singh, is because uh, of the very, um, uh, to me, it was emotional, emotional video you shared with uh, the interview that you did with your son, actually, uh, on um, national television, which, uh, again, if listenership hasn't, uh, hasn't seen that video, they, they must. Um, so with, with, with that preamble, Dr. Singh, uh, let, me, let me start by asking you when, you, when did you think that you should write this book, uh, which is titled Future Care? Uh, the publisher is, uh, I believe it's, it's the Mayo Press, but correct me if I'm wrong. No, you're right. It's it's future care, uh, sensors, AI, and the reinvention of medicine. And the publishers are the Mayo Clinic Press. Um, so you know, that's a good question because the book had been 
I would say simmering inside me for uh, almost eight to nine years, I think. Um, and I started writing it uh, a year before COVID, but it really got catalyzed by COVID. And, and it also got catalyzed by my illness with COVID because as, as you've read the book, the prologue actually is about my illness and, and the watershed moment uh, that occurred at that point in time for you know the US and every other country really opening its arms to technology and, and virtual care. So it really catalyzed the whole process but but I would say, um, Ankur, it was a confluence of many things in life. Obviously, my my journey across three continents, starting off in India, the UK, and the US. Um, then my experience as a as a clinician, uh, as a researcher, um, and also you know as as a administrative leader, having led the cardiology division uh, operations for over five years here at Mass General Hospital. And, and uh, you know, all of these things coupled with the fact that I experienced it from the other side of the bed as a patient, really, I, I think, uh, enforced uh, the ideation to me that I needed to come out with a book, putting all of this together about where healthcare was moving and on how healthcare should move forward. Um, yes, it's... Um... It's interesting that you mentioned that the, the the book was simmering for eight or nine years. Um, it's something that actually resonates with me because I've, when I when I as as an author, uh, when I started writing, putting pen on paper and started writing poetry, and that was sort of the prelude to the novel, which still simmers, and I'm sort of in in the process of finishing, you know, my own fiction. Um, it just takes that amount of time well i don't know if it takes that amount of time but to me it did uh, so thanks for sharing that it, it was sort of a similar process for you as well um i, I sort of want to uh, um unpack that a little bit and and that is that when it takes that much time um and you know the the spirit um so you know the inside of you knows that this needs to, at some point this needs to be put to paper what is going through that 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 time that time period which you know may not be quote unquote objectively productive is actually philosophically still very productive because you are forming concrete ideas as to what exactly you want to put on paper uh, and i i don't even know if this makes sense to you but i think no, it does. It does. It makes it makes perfect sense. You know, I think there are two ways of looking at this. Uh, I think if you look at it as a first-time author, uh, yes, uh, I think the latency is probably longer uh, because you're not familiar with the process. You're still trying to get your hands around, you know, how it's all going to evolve. And I'll ha happily take you through my own journey in a few minutes. But I do feel that if you're a second-time author and you're writing for the second time, the construct is much faster. Uh, the ideation, um, you know, doesn't require that much of a prolonged period of time. Uh, the research you need to do, again, is, is, is more easily done because you've been through the process once before. You know, writing a book is more than just writing it, right? I mean, there's this whole process of first writing it, uh, researching it enough to make sure it's written well, then if it's nonfiction, ensuring that it's well-referenced and, and it's up to date, 
And then, you know, before that, you know, finding an agent, getting a publisher, uh, getting, you know, an editor, all those things are are, are a process by itself. Um, so, so writing the book for me, I think, when I really put pen to paper, honestly, I think it took me about a year, year and a half. But it was the whole process of brewing over it and knowing that I wanted to write it that probably took longer than it should have initially. Uh, but I think the main thing eventually is to be a little regimented about it, Ankur, is to really put pen to paper and and draw some timelines for yourself and and um, try to make it a, a process that you engage in on a daily basis. Uh, because, you know, we have other careers, right? We're clinicians. We're, we're clinicians, we're researchers, we're administrators. Um, so we have, you know, almost three parallel careers going on at the same time. So to find time for writing becomes a challenge. Uh, but it's something that if one is interested in, one really needs to kind of find the space and the time um, to kind of make it a part of your daily life. Yes. And, and I want to sort of delve into this a little bit before I get into the content of the book itself. And, and that is for the budding authors who are listening, who I'm sure there are many within the cardiology community. Um, uh, Cause a lot of, a lot of um, particularly, you know, early career, also mid career uh, have expressed interest in, in writing. Um, I have two questions, you know, you, you mentioned about being regimented. So how would you, um, how would you describe it for a budding author? Some of the tips that you would share with a budding author as to how you did it, uh, you know, finding time between uh, all the other roles that you just mentioned, you know, being, being, being just consummate clinicians, researchers and administrators, how then you, how do you then find time to put, put pen on paper and, and write a book as evolved as future care? Um, that's the first question. Totally, totally. It's it's a it's a good question. I think everybody has a different strategy depending on their own personal work life balance. Um, I can kind of give you mine. Uh, so first of all, you know the process of writing required a fair degree of refinement for me itself. Uh, I'll come to the I'll come to the regimented part in two seconds. You know I I've, I've as you know written over four hundred and fifty research papers. Um, so my style of writing was largely for the clinical world, um, in a very, you know, study oriented manner, uh, uh, very medicinal, if I would say, if that's a right word to use out here. So, so writing for me required, um, I would say reinventing my writing style first, um, and then, uh, you know, playing with it, uh, blogging a little bit on medium and Medscape to see how much I could write for what a non-electrophysiologist and a non-cardiologist and then for the general community as a whole and see what level of engagement I could potentially get by changing the tone of the conversation. And that was really important for me because uh, the book, as you know, is, is, a, is a personal one. It's, it's, uh, it's intermingled with, uh, I would say, or peppered with uh, several patient stories. Um, and and uh, the reason for that was, one is to engage even the non-medical readers, uh, but at the same time, make it relatable so that you could have a story that led to how care was being transformed in that particular patient. So, so that was, you know, the, the 
the construct of the book evolved. I, I didn't know that it was going to turn out the way it did right from the get-go. Uh, in fact, even, even the title of this book initially was called Censored, uh, you know, with an S, S-E-N-S-O-R-E-D. Um, and, but then it, it evolved uh, into future care and then evolved into Censors AI and Reinvention of Medicine uh, because I, I thought, you know, I can use my entire breadth of experience beyond sensors and, and the clinical world uh, experience, too, to kind of really help it um, uh, change care, hopefully, in the, in the future. Now, to do that, um, when you're writing things in your own field, you know, you still have to do a lot of research because there are things that are out of your exact area of expertise. Uh, but the level of research you need is probably less. Uh, than in something if you decide to write something that's not in your area of expertise. So that was not too challenging for me uh, from the research end of things. So the way I really uh, spent my time was I would have a full clinical day in between patients or in between procedures. I would do snippets of research, um, uh, whichever way it would be on the World Wide Web or on in reading books or, or pulling articles. Uh, but I would write primarily on the weekends. Uh, I would write on Saturday and Sunday, you know, sometimes uh, eight to 10 hours at a stretch. Um, and, and remember, it was COVID time. So there was not a whole lot to do uh, beyond sitting at home, either watching TV or writing. So I, I constructed my research during the course of the week, and I did most of my writing over the weekends. Uh, so that's the bare kind of strategy and happy to delve into greater details. Um, yes, uh, I think that's um, it's helpful. Um, I mean, I think just to get into the details of how how to start, like how to even start writing, like what are some of the etiquettes or you know like um, ergonomics around writing? I mean, do you have a dedicated space? Do you uh, put a sign outside the one of the rooms in the house that you know do not disturb? I'm writing. Or is it something that you know people can knock and you know you know maybe serve you tea or coffee or you know what have you? How how do you do that? I've always been a little more flexible. Um, I I you know I I hey, this may sound pretty crazy, but I like to have a relationship with my desk, my study table, or my desk or the area that I'm actually sitting into. And I have a couple of places that I usually always gravitate towards when I'm writing. Um, you just need to be comfortable in your zone. Um, I, I don't mind being disturbed. It doesn't really seriously impact the flow of thoughts. I'm able to, uh, you know, reorient myself pretty quickly. So I'm not, uh, I, I'd say, overtly protective about my space and time when I'm writing. Um, you know, it's strangely enough, uh, I write with hand my first draft. So I have these 20 notebooks. Um, and I write, this is also pretty crazy to say, I write with a fountain pen um, and I have uh, three or four different ink pens with different colors for different parts of these notebooks that I would actually write my thoughts and write how I would want this particular chapter or section to look. I may not complete writing it completely, but it, the initial part for almost every part of the book was all handwritten before I then put it into the computer. I, I just feel that I think a lot better when I'm writing by hand than typing. 
Um, and it just makes the process more personal. I, I, you know, I don't know if that's a fair statement to say. Um, so those are some kind of techniques that I adopt for myself. Yeah, no, I, I think it's fascinating that you would still write um, with a fountain pen on paper. I mean, you know, just to be literal about it, I think it's, um, it's, uh, I think the, the one other person I know who does the same, uh, who has written very, some like very seminal papers in our field is, is Dr. Barry Marin. Uh, when I was his fellow, he would write every single paper just like that. And, you know, these are then your New England Journal and Lancet papers. Um, you know, it's obviously different than what how i would write i mean i would just write i would just type essentially but um it's it's really fascinating for me to hear that that's how you wrote your book um i will have to agree with you on assigning particular spaces to write um because you know philosophically and spiritually i do think that um if you dedicate a particular space to a particular task that creates energy um and you know at the end of the day we're all energy we're all energy sources and and how we interact with different energy fields is is how our life manifests but that's you know on a spiritual realm um so thank you for sharing that with us uh getting to the specifics of the of the book itself so the content of the book um what would you uh think is the section of the book which is um which may sound futuristic you know no pun intended it's it's titled future care but what according to you is is a section in the book which may sound futuristic to the reader as of today but you are fairly convinced is going to be a reality sooner than later and you know maybe i'm embarking upon uh, ai here yeah no absolutely so so you know just to give folks the premise of the book um uh it's sectioned into four different uh, sections. One is on virtual care, second is on sensors, the third is on AI, and the fourth is on sustainable workflows that will allow this to become common practice. Um, you know, virtual care is kind of here, um, you know, at least the telehealth form of it. Sensors is kind of here, although requires a lot of refinement uh, and integration with you know, our electronic medical record systems and into our day-to-day -day practice. Artificial intelligence too is already kind of here, whether it's conventional AI or whether it's generative AI, and we can get into that. Um, but again, they need to find their way into uh, clinical practice. And then the whole sustainable workflows of how medicine is practiced today uh, is going to change too. You know, whether whether we're talking about, you know, uh, uh, modular care where you have piecemeal care that is beyond just your hospital and your current clinicians, where you have third-party vendors providing care or self-management strategies, or this whole evolution of care from the current systemness mode into one that will be called networkness, um, which I think is the way care will evolve. Uh, some of it is already here. Um, the book, Ankur, is really not dystopian at all. I, I've tried to make it such that much of the care that we're able to deliver is, is within reach and I think will be available to us within the next seven to 10 years. Um, and so, so it's something that I think is relatable. Uh, 
Um, but one could certainly take each section of the book to the highest level, right? One could take virtual care to the metaverse, uh, saying, you know, we'll be, be having uh, clinic visits in, in uh, virtual reality. So that's something which is not here as yet, but is already happening in part, uh, I would say, for spaces like physical rehabilitation and for, you know, mental health disorders and situational phobias. You could take sensor strategies for really digitizing the entire human body with organ-specific sensors. Some of that is already here, but a lot of that still remains to be done. And then the AI thing, as, as you alluded to, um, you know, conventional AI and predictive analytics uh, is somewhat here in a focused way, but is evolving for sure. And then generative AI with all these large language models uh, is going to certainly change the way we practice medicine. Um, you know, fascinating, really. So I think if if we were to then focus on, you know, like you said, from system nest to network nest, um, fast forward a few years, um, how do you see a future hospital? I mean, I think in terms of how we interact with, you know, the structure called a hospital, and I, I think part of me also wants to um, sort of highlight uh, actually your institution has has invested in in the home hospital program um how, how do you think the hospital will start looking like in in about 10 years from now if, if that is a fair question to you oh no that's that's a fair question i i think you know there, there's so everything in medicine is going to be iterative um, and much of it will be dictated, at least the rapidity with which it's, with progress is seen will be dictated by, um, uh, you know, fiscal sustainability. Uh, and every organization will have different levels of engagement, depending on whether they're, you know, community centers, academic centers, large tertiary centers or quaternary centers. They're all going to adapt to this whole phenomenon. Um, I would say, with different levels of intensity. Um, I, I think what you're alluding to is, you know, the possibility of a large virtual hospital. Uh, I think that's a while away, for sure. Uh, primarily because I don't think the digital bricks to enable uh, the construct of such a hospital uh, will be ready by then. I, I do feel that it'll first start by having uh, you know, let me let me answer that uh, in a smaller version. What do I think the ideal clinic visit will look like five or six years from now or, or 10 years from now? I think the ideal clinic visit will be a virtual visit, which will be powered by sensors, uh, uh, which will have, you know, machine learning strategies to enable us to use all those data from sensors to really have an objective assessment of those patients. And this will be multidisciplinary uh, and primarily video-based. So you can only imagine an oncological visit with all the different clinicians all showing up at the same time, uh, or, or even multidisciplinary clinic visits within a, you know, a cardiology practice with the different subspecialists being able to engage at the same time virtually, uh, but all having the same objective sensor-driven data with machine learning strategies, providing us algorithmic-based uh, approaches to treat those patients, and then everybody putting their head together. I, I, I think it's so important for us to 
recognize that as digital as we want to make the future, I think the only way uh, that it will be relevant is if we can preserve the human touch. And, and, and I think uh, some of the space that AI will create is to give us more time for creating that human touch. And, and I think the future clinic will then evolve into a futuristic hospital. Uh, and much of those hospitals will be very asset light organizations uh, because that's where the networkness comes into place. Uh, and also, as you alluded to, the home-based hospital comes into place where the hospital is more of a virtual structure, but it has now got a footprint in your home because it's looking after you. So its tentacles have reached there, uh, which now kind of belong at least in part to the hospital while they're caring for you. So, so much of this is going to evolve, uh, and a lot of it is going to be also dictated by the finances behind it all. Yes, I, as you were explaining this so eloquently, and thank you for um, being so vivid in your description of this, I, I was sort of trying to uh, come up with a visual structure of how this may look like. Um, do you see some of this already at your workplace, Dr. Singh? Is that a fair statement to make? So I think we've started embarking on the home-based hospital strategy. We do not have virtual multidisciplinary clinics with the same rigor that we had them during the COVID pandemic. So, for example, one of the clinics that I founded is called the Resynchronization and Advanced Cardiac Therapeutics Program. And we would see our patients during COVID, the heart failure clinician, the nurse practitioner, the patient, and the EP clinician, along with the device diagnostic stuff, we'd see the patient all at the same time virtually. Uh, and would have, uh, we actually published a paper on this too, and would have meeting of the minds at the same time and share the device diagnostic data and sensor-based data with the heart failure patient. Uh, so it was done in a very focused way. Um, so the answer to your question is, has this been done? The answer is yes. Um, can it be done at scale? The answer is yes. Uh, but for that, you really need to change the value proposition of the organization and, and requires a lot of culture change in the way we practice medicine. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I know you've you sort of touched upon this by saying that uh, a lot of this will be, um, you know, guided by, uh, you know, fiscal slash financial um, capital for different health systems. Um, with with AI, I mean, AI is here, you know, whether you call it artificial intelligence or augmented intelligence and some, um, you know, organizations even, well, not organizations, but, you know, I, I would say, yeah, organizations as well as journals, as well as, um, you know, some, um, you know, big tech companies saying that this is going to um, sort of annihilate so many, so many human jobs. Um, how do you integrate how do you integrate this to like what will what should change for this to become a reality of scale is my question in your opinion yeah no for sure for sure so so i think one thing is for sure and you know you probably heard this adage uh, many times that you know clinicians who use ai will replace clinicians who don't use ai right the same thing with the radiologists who use ai will replace the radiologists that don't use ai um, so, so I, I think 
I don't think the job, so here's, so within the clinical world, I don't think the jobs will suddenly disappear. I think they will be redefined and repurposed and folks will be redeployed. Um, to give you an example, um, I think that we will have large remote monitoring centers. Some of this is actually already in play at some of the bigger institutions and like ours. Um, and, and some of the jobs there are being redefined where you know you will have healthcare navigators or you will have research uh, registered nurses uh, along with advanced uh, practitioners as well as with clinicians who will now man or woman these, uh, these remote monitoring centers. So that'll be a completely new job description where people will be using AI-based approaches with sensors to monitor patients in their homes but you won't be a practicing clinician in the outpatient clinic all the time like you were in the past. So I think there will be a redefining of what the job uh, description will be for many of these jobs. And similarly, even for radiologists, I think we already know that some of this is already transpiring where folks are using uh, even large language models to you know, create reports, uh, synthetic reports for, for uh, radiology reports, as well as in clinics out there. So, so I think some of this is already happening. Uh, I think the way of uh, making this fiscally viable, which I think is the uh, underpinning of your question, is you know how do we kind of make it fiscally viable? I think the only way of making it fiscally viable is to really shifting the financial equation to value-based care. Now, I think we've been talking about value-based care for a while. Uh, but beyond that, I think shared saving strategies, uh, which are kind of capitated approaches, uh, would be probably the best way to make healthcare sustainable. Um, and I think the digital transformation of the way we deliver care will actually bring about another level of transparency. Uh, and that transparency in reimbursement that transparency in, in the variance in practice that exists will again help to make care more sustainable. And I think beyond this, uh, AI-based approaches coupled with sensor approaches will allow patients to have some skin in the game. And that means that we will need to have self-management approaches incorporated into the way we practice medicine uh, because that's the only way we can make healthcare sustainable. So, so there, there are a few asks out here, and this is why I started off by saying that we really need to redefine the value proposition, uh, which obviously requires a really clear, elaborate strategic vision. And then we have to go into play of, of changing the culture, uh, of really evolving uh, into what we think uh, a digital culture needs to be. Yeah, no, this this all sounds very exciting. Getting back to, uh, I think, a topic that you touched upon when you were answering some some of the earlier questions was it all of the, all of these technological advancements with uh, you know language processing and augmented intelligence or artificial intelligence then um, you know allowing us more time to hone our skills on the human aspect of medicine. Um, I, I do want to unpack this a little bit more with you. Um, how do you see this in practice in clinics or during inpatient rounds or in the procedure lab? Because I mean, I know you were 
you sort of check the boxes on all th- all three of those roles. Uh, you know, being a clinician, a proceduralist, and also rounding on inpatients. Absolutely. So, so let's start with uh, you know the outpatient arena. Um, if you look at the way ninety percent of the clinicians these days practice, when they're seeing a patient in the outpatient uh, uh, clinic, uh, you know. 70% of their time is spent in actually on the keyboard and looking at the computer and not really engaging with the patient. Uh, and that's because, you know, there are these mundane tasks that we are chained to, whether it's, you know, ordering labs or, or billing or, you know, writing prescriptions or pre-authorizations. I think the use of AI will allow us to get unchained from these mundane tasks. At the same time, it'll liberate us from our keyboards uh, with the option of having synthetic notes that are automatically created by large language models um, while we're in clinic using natural language processing, obviously, um, that will free up time, uh, free up time for us to engage with our patients, maintain eye contact, and actually get to know them a little better uh, because, you know, these visits, as you know, are seven to 10 minutes long, uh, oftentimes, and sometimes longer, obviously. But, but that's something I think um, we, we, we will have the opportunity of, of spending more time with patients. Now, just using that uh, angle a little more, I think it's also important that when we see patients every six months or every two years for 10 to 15 minutes, we're trying to break the narrative of that patient's story into 15 minutes, what has transpired over the course of the year, which is kind of crazy, right? Because all our clinic visits are very transactional. We see them at six months, 12 months, one year, two years, but patients don't fall ill at those intervals. They can fall ill at any point in time. And I think what sensor-based approaches and AI will do is allow us the opportunity of continuously tracking our patients uh, and and actually having a much better uh, uh, dense narrative of their lifestyles and what's going on that will allow us to know them better. And I think in the future also give us the opportunity of providing exception-based care, which will make healthcare more sustainable. That is really seeing the patients when you really need to see them, uh, but seeing them you know, as a full-fledged clinician uh, with most of the data and the notes all taken care of, so you can really spend time with the patients. So, so I think the gift of time is certainly something that I think AI will give us in the outpatient arena. I think the same applies to the inpatient side. Um, I, I think the visits uh, can be multidisciplinary. You can imagine, uh, I've written about this in the future hospital section in my book, that you walk into the clinic, uh, you walk into uh, you know a patient's room. And you actually have a large video screen where you can pull in the other specialists to have a conference at the same time by the bedside of the patient in a multidisciplinary fashion, uh, rather than everybody coming at disparate times and rounding. Uh, it's just there needs to be a will and there needs to be a culture change to really be able to establish that. But that's how I think the future of care will be personalized. Uh, even in the inpatient mode, giving us, again, a lot of time to interact with the patient because there will be ambient sensors uh, and and variable sensors that will give us all the objective data. And you can then really examine the patient and get to know the patient uh, better than trying to, you know, just collect data uh, otherwise the way we do right now. 
With respect to procedures, you know, uh, we just uh, started a trial with augmented reality and um, uh, where, you know, I wear these virtual reality headsets um, and I can create the holographic image of the left atrium right in front of me uh, and I see where the catheters are going within the heart. Uh, but I can also wear teaching glasses. I get my fellow to wear teaching glasses or, or learning glasses at the same time. And he and I can both, or she and I can both move the, the holographic images uh, with the movement of our heads and really teach the three-dimensional anatomy of a procedure in real time. Uh, so those things are happening, some of, of which is already here. Uh, so I'm very excited about the way sensors and AI can change the way we practice medicine in the near future. Yeah, that, that's exciting. I mean, I think uh, just to, um, to to wear that headset, and I, I did see a video of you wearing that headset um, on your you know LinkedIn feed, uh, and then how you can transmit those images uh, in three dimensions, I think would be a fascinating teaching tool. Uh, I mean, I think part of me just wants to. I mean, not that we're, I mean, we know that we are, we are gluttons for punishment, but not that I want more punishment with more training, but I, I, you know, part of me just wants to go back, um, and train, uh, you know, particularly in structural heart space, because so much of what you would, uh, you know, envision as a fellow in training in structural heart disease would be trying to envision how this would look like, or how this looks like in, you know, in real space. And now you actually have the technology that will facilitate you to see these catheters move inside the heart chambers in, in, in the reality of space, which I think is just fascinating for a learner. Totally, totally. I, you know, I, my, my daughter's in med school, uh, and, uh, you know, they're learning things in 3D, and, and virtual reality is, is a part of the way they're teaching you know, pro, uh, uh, strategies out there. And I, I sometimes feel like you that maybe learning now in this era is so much more interesting uh, when you can see everything just swimming around you in, in three dimensions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, Dr. Singh, switching gears, you know, just uh, go back to your own journey as a physician, as a clinician, as an author, as a clinician investigator, as a physician scientist. You've accomplished so much. I mean, I think for someone who's coming from you know, India or, or, you know, else wherever, and to, to, to be where you are, uh, you're sort of the, um, the beacon of excellence for so many of us who, uh, you know, role model is what essentially is what I want to say, you know, having checked off all those boxes that, you know, every, um, ambitious aspirant, uh, immigrant to the U S would want to check off, um, you know, exceptional training, a great career in in clinical medicine, in investigational medicine, being at the Massachusetts General Hospital, and now you know uh, um, tinkering with um, pushing the um, the the investigational field forward with uh, you know work like future care. Um, what more is left for Doctor Singh to accomplish? <laughs> That's too funny that you asked. Oh, I think life has just kind of started. Uh, as long as one's healthy, I think one needs to keep reinventing oneself. You know, I, I you know, I always say what my dad once told me. You know, you're not born to profess one profession. Um, so I, I always, I, 
I get this restless energy when I reach a particular plateau phase of something I'm doing. And I start looking around uh, as to how I can keep myself occupied. <laughs> so I, I don't know what the next phase is. Right now, I'm really enjoying being a clinician. I think it's such a privilege to be a physician and walk the corridors and have the trust of your patients and be able to look after them. Um, I, I just, um, you know, it's a, it's a huge honor. And then alongside that, having the opportunity to write um, and have an impact uh, has been a phenomenal outlet. Um, and, and I hope to do more of that for now. And besides that, you know, time will tell. But I, I really appreciate your sentiments. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, 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 I hope I can live up to all the expectations that you just put forth in your statements there. Um, and you, you know, you sort of have done already. So I, that's why, you know, henceforth the question, you know, what else is left in uh, Dr. Singh's bucket list that he hasn't uh, checked off just yet? Um, and then, um, you know, before we, we end the end the segment, uh, any uh, piece of advice or, uh, you know, words of wisdom you have for, um, you know, house staff, medical students, fellows in training, early career, because, you know, those form a, an important segment of, of our listenership. Uh, many of us who actually do look up to you, um, you know, and your, your career. Uh, any, any words of wisdom for, for that, that segment of our listenership? Um, you know, I, I'll say uh, along the course of our careers, you know, all of us experience headwinds. And, and I think it's so important not to get dragged out down by them, but actually just consider them as something that's going to chisel us for bigger moments. Um, and, and to use those experiences to leverage, you know, your next uh, decision. But I will say this, I, I think, and I've said this before, um, uh, you know, make the most of any opportunity that comes down your path and and not not being an opportunist, but in the in, in the right way of, you know, because Every uh, job that you do that is done well leads to another job or another opportunity. Uh, sometimes many of us, when we're in the early stages of our career, we're always waiting for the right opportunity packaged in the right way to fall at our feet. That never really happens. If that does happen, it happens to some privileged people who are very lucky, uh, but it doesn't usually happen. So I think you know, making the most of any opportunity and using that to get more opportunities uh, is is a good way to profess your career and and keep moving forward. You know that's um, actually a great piece of advice. You know something which which I would um, you know completely second and um, you know I completely completely resonate with. Um, Doctor Singh, thank you so much for uh, you know sparing y your time with us. Uh, you know we all know how busy you are, uh, so thank you for doing this for us at at such a short notice and really always great to connect with you and you know learn from you and um for those of you who have not yet gotten a copy of future care go ahead and get a copy for yourself the the links for the book and where you can get a copy will be shared uh, if you happen to then have a copy and meet dr singh in one of the conferences then you know i'm sure he will be more than happy to autograph it for you i i know that i have a physical copy and would like to get one autograph from him um, and then do share your feedback with us. You know, we are all uh, very keen on feedback. Um, and if you want to get more guests on the show like Dr. Singh and learn from them, 
you know, do let us know and we'll do our best to, to get those guests to you. Uh, again, do share your feedback on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. Um, and until then, until next Monday, we'll, we'll see you again. Thank you. Thank you, Ankara. Take care. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favourite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at ratcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.